morning, church. Uh, if you please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Uh, we'll continue in our study there. Uh, I think I know quite a few of you. For those of you who don't know me, though, my name is Jason Strode. I have the privilege to serve as one of your deacons here at Mission Bible Church. Um, thank you again for having me to preach. I really enjoy uh, being able to preach to you guys. Uh, some of you were here the last time. I remember the last time I was asked to preach, Errol came up to me and he said, hey, we, we really like you to step in. We'd like you to preach here. Would you be willing to do it coming up sometime? I said, yeah, sure, I'd love to. He says, all right. And this was back in January. He said, we'll have you, uh, we'll have you preach in March. So get your notes together, study, do all that. We'll meet a couple times. We'll go over everything. Uh, then I'll have you preach in front of the pastors. We'll critique you, tell you what you need to fix and all that stuff. I said, perfect. So we went through it all, and, and I think it went pretty well last time. This time he comes up to me again, and he says, hey, would you be willing to preach coming up? I said, yeah, I'd love to. I said, but the same stipulations, you've got to give me plenty of time. You know, I'm a slow reader. I'm not good at this stuff. It takes me a long time to get prepped. He says, perfect. You've got two weeks. So we'll see how it goes for today. Uh, for him, that must be plenty of time. But for me, it was cramming. Uh, because of that, I was studying quite a bit throughout the week, a little bit right after work, or right after work when I could. And uh, my wife one day, she says, um, I'll take all the kids away on Saturday. You can have the whole, the whole day just study, get ready, prep, whatever you got to do. So I had the TV on. I was playing sermons on the TV. I had my laptop sitting there, my iPad. I had a couple study Bibles out. I had a couple commentaries out. I had it all there because I was cramming, cross-referencing, writing notes down. My daughter was sitting at the table eating breakfast, watching me watch a sermon. She went off, played, comes back, eats lunch. I'm still watching sermons. She comes down, sits next to me, and I think she was waiting for me to put something better on. And she goes, Dad... Why do you have all this stuff out here, and why are you watching all these sermons? I said, well, i, I got a preach coming up, and I need to know what I'm talking about. I want to make sure I say the right things, and I don't screw anything up. And she looks at me with zero confidence that I can pull it off and says, Dad, why don't you just read the Bible to them? So <laughs> we'll see how it goes today. You may have wished that I actually did what she asked me to do rather than preaching to you guys. Uh, but if you please stand with me, we're going to read Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid ha their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of God. Let us pray together. Dear Lord, thank you for another beautiful day. I pray that your name would be praised and glorified and lifted up in our service to you today. That as we come together unified as a body to worship you, that you would be glorified in the praises that we sing, in our hearts towards each other, and in the words that I speak today, Lord. I pray that everything that I speak would be in accord with your word, would be submissive to what you have shown through your Holy Spirit. I also pray that anything that I speak that would be against your word, you'd wipe from the minds of everyone who hears it. In your name we pray, amen. Please be seated. 
So we've been going through the book of Acts, um, kind of prepping and, and letting you know we went through our name change, and we talked we're, we're going to be planting our uh, multi-sided in, in Morris coming up, and we're really going to be a church that's focused on mission. We reflected that in our name. And so we've been going over Acts the last uh, several weeks. To understand where we're at, I think we need to, to recognize Acts for what it is, and I think it's a book that's primarily a book of celebration. We see in Matthew, Christ proclaims, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I believe Acts, is a, it lays this out for us. Even throughout all of the attacks on the church, the apostles being beaten, imprisoned, we see many of the first Christians being martyred for their faith. Even through all these negative things, I think Acts is still ultimately a book of, of celebration and how Christ has built up his church, the word of God has spread, and sinners have been forgiven and come to know him. You'll often hear, especially in a church our size, we're not concerned with numbers. Numbers are not what's important. Whether you're a church of 2,500 or you're a church of 25, we don't care about numbers. That's not what's important to us. And part of that sentiment is true when we're talking about church versus church. We're not in competition with another one. But if we read the book of Acts, we recognize that numbers are extremely important to the apostles. As time and again they say that the church was growing and multiples came to know Christ. And they give X amount of people came to know Christ that day and repented of their sins. Numbers are important. They show that when the church is growing and is healthy, that Christ's proclamation that he will build his church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And we see that as the church grows and grows and grows. And in this day and age, there's more Christians than have ever been. I know that sounds kind of off as we see and read that the American church and the Western church is shedding numbers every year. And there's more nons and non-Christians and non-believers in our, in our midst. But if we look worldwide in everywhere except for America, Europe, and those countries that used to be owned by Britain and every other country, Christianity is outpacing population growth. That's pretty amazing. More people are being converted and being forgiven their sins and coming to know Christ than are being born every day. To me, that's an amazing thing and something that we should celebrate and thank God for. And unless we get too worried about it in, in America we, and recognize the church has shrank, the evangelical church in America has shrank by 5 million people over the past 10 years. Now, I don't think that's all bad news. Most of those churches that have shrank have come from churches that, have, that no longer believe the Bible is the true, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word of God. Most of them have dropped off. But the churches that still hold to that, that the Bible is God-breathed, it's God-appointed, it is literally his word to us, have grown by two million people. I think what we see is a shedding of nominal Christians. I believe Christ's winnowing fork is at the threshing floor, eliminating those who are Christian in name only and is strengthening his church. Through the little bit of persecution that we are experiencing, he is already shedding off those who aren't really part of the body, that our body could be strengthened so that our mission could be accomplished of proclaiming his name, proclaiming the gospel, so sinners would come to know him. And I believe that's what we're seeing here in America. I believe the church is being strengthened through the outside persecution. Now, we're not going through persecution like many other countries in the world are. We're not being imprisoned. We're not being beaten. We're not being martyred for our faith. But there is a social persecution that's happening, and I think we all can feel it, and we know what's coming next. And I believe that Christ is using that first wave of persecution that's coming against us to strengthen us, to prepare us, so we're ready for battle to go out and proclaim the gospel in what now is the mission field of the Western, Western world. As we read Acts, uh, I think Acts is laid out primarily in, in one way. We have, first off, church growth. Then we have Satan's attack against the church. 
Then through the power of the Holy Spirit and his people, we have the attack thwarted. And then again, church growth once that attack has been dealt with. And I believe it's a cycle that we see through Acts. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Just as we grow individually through trials and temptations, the same is true of the church and for the same reasons. We recognize that growth and strength comes from overcoming obstacles in our personal life. And the same is true for the church. The church is pruned, refined, and strengthened through the same methods. Ease and comfort leads to flabbiness and atrophy. Ease and comfort leads to flabbiness and atrophy. I coach wrestling for uh, the Indians elite team, and we've got uh, preseason conditioning going on right now. And everything we try to make the kids do, I try to do with them too. And nothing will show you how flabby and atrophied you are as trying to work out like you did in high school. <laughs> but an unchallenged and an untempered church is not battle ready. An unchallenged and an untempered church is not battle ready. I believe Satan's playbook and how he attacks the church is small, but I believe it's small because it's effective. And I believe he attacks us in primarily three ways. First is persecution. The second is hypocrisy or spiritual failings of the members. And the third is division. Hypocrisy and spiritual failings, I think, is, is one of the large ones. and something that we have seen hit really close to home in the last several years and in the news. As we look, the Roman Catholic Church has majorly been hit by this as a hypocrisy and its leadership. But the evangelical church hasn't been untouched, as we've seen even just down the road at Willow Creek and Harvest Bible Chapel had to deal with these same things. And not to mention all the number of smaller churches who don't even make the news. This is a major issue in the church. I don't think anybody can read the word of God, any of your preachers or ministers, anybody who's teaching the word of God to you, and not be struck with their own hypocrisy as we stand before you and try to proclaim the gospel. I can't actually look at this word and preach it the way it's written and not see how short I fall on a daily basis and how sinful I actually am. And so that hypocrisy has to always be looked at, always has to be dealt with before we move on. And much of it will lead into division. What's interesting to note is we see in chapter 5, at the end of chapter 5, the apostles have been beaten, they've been imprisoned, and then they're let go. And then we see in the beginning of chapter 6, we see the hypocrisy and we see division starting in the church. Once that's taken care of, Satan returns back to play one with the persecution. As we see into the arrest and then the eventual martyrdom of St. Stephen. But each time he goes through these cycles, he hits it with greater vigor, greater strength, and greater passion towards stopping the church. I believe this model is directly uh, the same as what Job went through when we read there. As each time that we're attacked, each time that we are able to stand up to it, not because of our own strength, but because our faith on Jesus Christ, our faith in the Holy Spirit to carry us through there, the, the more we submit to his leading and his teaching, that each time we're strengthened that we can go forward. And so God's hand is pulled back and his restraint against Satan is lessened. So that the attacks increase and increase and increase. And each time that they increase and we're able to stand up, we recognize that it's not our strength that's standing up against the attacks of Satan and against the trials and temptations that approach our way. But it's our dependence on the work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 28 in the chapter before this says, You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. So we know when we first went through, started this series, there's four basic marching orders, four benchmarks that they were supposed to hit. That was to take it into Jerusalem, Judea, Sumeria, and to the ends of the earth. 
So right here where the church is at, step one has been accomplished. Goal one, they filled Jerusalem with their teaching. So they're getting ready now to take this message out into Judea. They, they filled Jerusalem. They, they knocked the first one off. They got to be feeling really great. And this is kind of where we're at as, as Mission Bible Church. We've done a really good job with our, our message here in Manuka. There's more work to do, don't get me wrong. But we've done well at filling Manuka with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the churches that are also around us have been strengthened and they're proclaiming the gospel. Manuka and Shanahan is on a good course because of the work that, that Christ has done and the Holy Spirit has done to the people in this community. And now we're getting ready to step out into Morris and assist those churches out there so that we can proclaim the gospel and build up the church in Morris. And just as the church in Acts right now is getting ready to take it into Judea, we have to look at and see where our problems are, where our fault lines are. Before the gospel can spread out, we must take an internal look and see the areas that must be addressed. A self-evaluation of where our strengths are, where our weaknesses are, and where we are even disobedient. Verse 1 says, A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So first off, to understand this, we need to know what a Hellenist is versus a Hebrew. These are both Jews. Uh, the Hebra uh, Hebraic Jews were those who predominantly always lived in Jerusalem. Uh, once they came back out of exile, they stayed in Jerusalem. They spoke Hebrew um, or Aramaic. They um, read the text in the original languages. They had better lineage ties. They could trace out their lines. And we know in, in Judaism that's a very important thing. We see it as, as we lay out all the, the um, lineages in Scripture. Uh, the Hellenistic Jews were more Greek. They were more up to Greek customs. They spoke Greek. Um, their ties and their familial lines were not as strong. Some of them came out of slavery in different parts of the Roman Empire. Most of them were Roman citizens. Um, and they had very different views of what the Messiah was going to look like. Most of the Hellenistic uh, Jews were okay with the government that was in place at the time. They weren't looking for a Messiah to save them from the government. They, they were looking more for a spiritual Messiah. Uh, and I believe that's why they jumped on so quickly. The Hebraic Jews, because they viewed themselves as being oppressed by the Roman government, uh, were looking for that Messiah to be a political or a military Messiah. And so even though they've cast it aside and recognized Christ is our Messiah, Christ is the one, even though our, our thoughts were somewhat wrong on that, and we, we recognize that Christ is the Messiah now, there's still those old pulls, those old ties, those old clashes that are going on at this point in time. And so they're doing their best to work through that and be a unified body through that. But as we say, the complaint, they lodged a complaint. This is the first internal attack. Everything else before this was all persecution coming from outside the church. This is the first time that there's an attack against the church that's coming from within. The word that's using in the Greek for the complaint is an onomatopoeia word, one of those words that sounds, sounds like what it, what it means. We could also use the word instead of complaint there, we could use murmuring or grumbling. They murmured against, they grumbled against that, that sound of what, it, what, it's actually, what it's actually meaning. We should notice as well, Scripture does not say a concern was raised. It doesn't say a problem was brought to the apostles. They, the people didn't come to him and say, guys, listen, we're, we're busting at the seams. But we're, we're not doing real good here. We've got to fix this. What can we do? How can we fix this? It says a complaint, a murmuring and it doesn't say about the problem either. It says a murmuring was brought against the Hebrews. A murmuring against another believer. This murmuring was a heart murmur. The Hellenistic Jews were, were murmuring that they had their hearts set against the Hebrew Hebraic Jews. And this was by all accounts a problem that was 
out of ignorancy, out of a not understanding, out of a language barrier. It wasn't anything that was malicious on why the widows were not being taken care of. However, the Hellenists took it as a personal insult, a personal slight, and they set their hearts against the Hebrews. And so we have to ask ourselves, who are we that we should ever allow our hearts to be turned against one of God's anointed? Who are we that we should ever set our hearts against someone else who Christ's blood has been shed for, they've been forgiven of their sins and been placed into the body of believers? Who are we that we should turn our hearts against another member of Christ's body? We don't need to look for reasons to be divided. They're evident and they're plenty. But we ought to be focused on unity as we share, the, the unity we share as being sinners forgiven by Christ. I believe it is a demonic attack and our sinful inclination which causes us to forget the unity we share in Christ and the Holy Spirit and to focus on the things instead that divide us. Hebrews 13, 17 reads, Be cautious of your leaders. Murmur against them, against their authority, because they lord it over you. Do this so that their work will benefit you. No, that's not what it reads at all. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no benefit to you. It says that if it is not a joy for our leaders to serve over us, if there's groaning against the leadership, if there's groaning against other believers in the body, that it is of no benefit for us. Our groaning is no benefit. Their leadership is of no benefit. Their discipleship is of no benefit. It is of no benefit to the body of believers or to us as individuals to groan against other believers. This is reminiscent of the Israelites as they're wandering through the desert with, with Moses and they start groaning against him. He says, why have you given me these people? They're growing against him. We're better under Egypt. We didn't starve to death under Egypt. You brought us out here. We've got no food. we got no shelter. You don't even know where we're going. Now, this is the same that we see in the New Testament here. You know, we left the Jewish leadership. They could hand out the food. Their dull worked. Everybody was taken care of. Now we follow. We recognize this new Jesus. We're following you. We're following him. And you can't even feed everybody. You're running around praying, getting arrested, getting beaten. You're not taking your time to care for us. Why did we leave what we used to know to come here and follow you guys? It's the exact same correlation that we see again our church going through in the New Testament. And for us today in Mission Bible Church, if you are a believer who's grumbling against another believer, if you're sitting here in our congregation, you're grumbling against the leadership, then first off, I would pray that you would repent and that you would work for unity. If you're a non-believer sitting here today, First and foremost, my biggest prayer is that your conversion would happen, that your salvation would come for you, that you would follow Jesus Christ, that you would be an asset to our body, you would work for unity, and help us proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth, that you would preach the glory of Jesus Christ and his forgiving work. But if you're a non-believer whose heart wouldn't be changed, and you're sowing division within our congregation, as hard as it is to say, I would pray that God would remove you from our congregation, that you wouldn't continue to sow division among us. Their sin was that they grumbled against each other. Their sin was that they had their hearts set against each other. And we might not have that division going on in, in Mission Bible Church right now, but maybe ours is we don't even recognize who the widows are. We don't even recognize who the needy are. We're going through and we're on the same mission, we're on the same team. There's no division, but we don't even know who needs the help. And that's something else that we have to be on guard for and watch out for. Verse 2 says, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. What's interesting is that that had to be said. 
And the fact that it was said shows that there was at least an argument or a suggestion made to that. It shows that they came up and said, listen, we're failing here. We're not getting these people fed. Maybe you should cut back on that preaching. You keep wandering off and spending time praying. How about you spend a little bit more time making sure the needs are met? We got people that are lacking food, lacking clothing, and you're taking your time to study. You're spending all day praying. Why don't you just cut that back a little bit and let's start, preach and start taking care of people more. And this is a powerful argument. Because what are the marks of true religion? The two marks of true religion is caring for widows and caring for orphans. And so I believe the apostles would have looked at this and said, you know what, that's a hard argument. If we're not doing this, we're failing in some way. And we know we were told the mark of a true religion is caring for widows and orphans. What do we do here? And I think in the wisdom and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they made the right choice and come into them and say, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. But they didn't say it's not right we don't take care of widows. What we see all throughout scripture is God constantly marries the physical and the spiritual together. We see this in communion, we see it in baptism, we see it in marriage, and we see it in worship. Are just some examples. We even see it in the crucifixion. And communion, communion without the spiritual aspect is just a snack. Baptism without the spiritual aspect is just dunking someone in water. Marriage without the spiritual aspect is fornication. Worship without the spiritual aspect is just singing and clapping hands. It's a spiritual tide with the physical in all ways. And so, what is more, what is more important to the, to the church? Prayer and preaching or caring for the needy? To answer this question, I think we have to ask another question. That is, what is more important, inhaling or exhaling? A church that is found wanting in either is a disobedient church. A church who's spot on in prayer and preaching but has no care for the needy and the wanting is a disobedient church. A church who only cares for the wanting but isn't proclaiming the glory of Jesus Christ and the gospel and the fact that his blood was shed to save sinners is no different than any other humanitarian effort. What makes the church the church is that we care for the needy so that we could pour the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ into their lives. So that sinners could repent of their sin and live with him forever. Verse 3 and 4. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. One thing we should see here, too, is they didn't call the whole congregation and say, what do you guys think we should do? How should we handle this? we got a problem, what should we do? No, these men were appointed by God. They were ordained by God to lead the people. They went back, they deliberated, and they came to the choice that they, they should. What we should also notice here is that new problems require new leadership. New problems require new leadership. And let me be clear what I mean here as well. This is not to cast off the old leadership. This is not to push them aside and say, okay, you ran your course, you have had your time, now we need new leaders. This is to say, listen, you are no longer effectual here because of how well we've grown, because of the work that the Holy Spirit has done in bringing people here. You are no longer effective to oversee all of this. We need to shut off some of that. The apostles still had authority in matters of doctrine, but they appointed men to administer the physical care of the church. This requires leaders to be humble enough to recognize when they are no longer effective due to overburden, and it requires new leaders to step up and fill those positions. As we step out as Mission Bible Church, and let me tell you, that we don't plan on this being our, our only multi-site. We plan on reaching every community that we can from there on out, and to keep working. But as, those, as we enter into that, new problems are going to happen. They're going to surface. They're coming. We're already talking about some of them that are, that are going on, and we need new leaders to step up. 
We need you to step up and go there. We need you to step up here. We need new leaders. The ministries that you are serving in now, you need to step up, take over leadership roles. If you're not serving at all, step in and fill in those, those service roles. Become coaches. Whatever it is that you can do, new problems require new leadership, and we need everyone to step into those positions. What we also see here is that the purpose and the duties of the church do not change, but the way in which they are administered must constantly be reevaluated and improved for the changing times. If we look at the church in the first century, we often say, oh, I wish we could go back there. I wish we could be like the, the first century church. I wish we were pure like that. But if we see the church has constantly changed and evolved in the way in which it proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, what it does not change is in its message. The word of God is the same as it's always been. Our duty, our responsibility, our efforts have always been the same. To proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our doctrine does not change, our beliefs do not change, but the way in which we administer those do change. And we see in the New Testament as the office of deacon is created here, that even in Scripture, the way that ministries are handled change. And so we need to be open to that as well. Also, we should notice here they do not ask for volunteers. They do not say we need people to serve the tables. We need people to handle the resources and to do this. Who would do it for us? Who will take care of us? And they tell them, they say, find seven good men and we will appoint them to this duty. They are told they're going to serve in that way. We should not always wait for an internal call to serve, but we should recognize that an external call from the body of believers can be just as much a leading of the Holy Spirit as, as an internal call. When you're approached by five, six, seven people who said, listen, you've got talents here, you have abilities here, we could use you here, we think you'd be great for this. You say, you know, I'm just, I don't have a heart call for that yet. I think I'm going to hold off. The Holy Spirit can use the people that are around you in the body of Christ to call you just as well as they can as a heart call. Finally, everyone is needed and has a role to fill. There are no extra or unnecessary parts in the body of Christ. Everyone is needed, and everyone has a role to fill. A lot of my generation, I'm one of the older millennials, we've been told our entire lives, you're special the way you are. You're great. You're perfect. You're special. You're special. I want to tell you, you're not special. That, not because of anything about you, but you are special in the way that Christ has redeemed you. If you are a believer in Christ, if you have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ and been forgiven, you are special in a way that Christ and the Holy Spirit have given you gifts that only you can use and only the way that, that you were given them in the position that you are at. If you're a mother, preach to the gospel to your children and raise them up the way they should go. If you're a father, lead your family in the way that they should go. Pour into your wife, pour into your children. If you're stepping into the church to serve in ministry, you can do that. If you're, if you're preaching the gospel to somebody you work with, what I'm telling you is that you cannot walk out of here and say, I have no ministry. You cannot walk out of here and say, there's no need for me to fill here. If your ministry to the church, to the believers universally, to the unbelieving ends once you walk out that door, you are being disobedient, you are depriving the church of gifts that have been given to you for the purpose of glorifying God and proclaiming his name and his gospel. Verse 3 says, men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. What we see here, too, is that the men who should lead have to be both wise and full of the spirit. It can't be one or the other. There are men who are full of the spirit who are not wise. There are men who are wise that are not full of the spirit. And if they don't meet both qualifications, they should not be serving in this role. Verse 5 says, and what they, what they said pleased the whole gathering. What they said 
please the whole gathering. Highlight this, underline it, circle, whatever you got to do. I believe this is the single greatest miracle in the entire New Testament. Whoever has been on a team, on a committee, or even just try to figure out what to feed your kids for dinner knows to get everyone to agree on something, how amazing that is. When I first wrote that down, I kind of wrote it as a joke and a little tongue-in-cheek, but the more I thought about it throughout the week, the more I actually do believe, maybe not the greatest miracle, but one of the greatest miracles in the whole New Testament. What we see here is the Hellenists who are arguing against the Hebrews. The Hebrews are going to take an all offense to that and say, listen, you're attributing to us maliciousness that we did out of ignorance. We didn't even know, and you're arguing against us? You had your heart set against us? They could have held grudges. They could have taken insults. But what they did was they said, listen, there's a problem here, and we need to fix this. We need to be unified for the purpose of glorifying God. The personal attack or, or the attack on my pride, the little insult, I need to suffer that, put it behind me, and, and fix what we can so that I can show my brotherly love to you so we can be united going forward here. I read a book a few years ago by Jocko Willink. It was a, um, a book on leadership. If you guys don't know who Jocko Willink is, he's a Navy SEAL, uh, kind of an inspirational speaker. But one of the points that was in his book that I took out uh, was the line, the enemy is not within the wire. He was talking about military arguing against each other. and said the enemy is not inside the wire. The enemy is out there. And it's something that we need to be unified in and recognize that we need to set aside all personal insults. The enemy is not in the wire here. The enemy is out there. And we need to be unified on the same page, recognize that we are a family and have a love for each other, that we can go out there and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 5 says, They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus, and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas, and Nicholas, the proselyte of Antioch. When we read this, we notice two men are set apart here. First is St. Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And second is Nicholas, a proselyte. Now the first people who would have been reading this would have been reading it probably when these men were still alive and knew the course that each of these men's ministry ran. No doubt when we look at Stephen or St. Stephen as he's often called, we see a man who truly was full of the Holy Spirit. Later on it says that he was arguing in the synagogue. He was actually arguing with Paul, who at the time was Saul. And it says that no man could stand up against his wisdom or, or the spirit that he was filled with. And that's because of the strength of the Holy Spirit that he was able to, to out-argue, out-preach out the gospel to all these men who were the wisest men in Ju Judaism. Later, Paul oversees his stoning, and the garments of Stephen are brought to Paul. And Paul then is walking on the road to Damascus, and Christ stops him. And he says, you know what, you're going to take over the ministry of Stephen. The one who you couldn't argue with, the one who you oversaw his execution, you're going to take it up and you're going to spread the gospel further than Stephen ever would have. I think that's an absolutely amazing thing. But then Nicholas stands out on the other end. He says that he's a proselyte. He's a recent convert to this. And by all outward appearances, seems to be full of the Holy Spirit. However, we read in our Bibles later on in Revelation chapter 2, I believe it's verse 15, he's condemned. He becomes a heretic. He's known for bringing pagan worship back into the church. And he brings orgies back into the worship of, of, of God. And he's condemned, he's separated, and he's cast out. So for, first, we recognize where division is acceptable in the church. And that's when the gospel message itself is threatened. At that point in time, division ought to happen because we're dividing those out who are not part of the flock. Second off, uh, 1 Timothy 5.22 says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor partake in the nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So we recognize as, as Nicholas was bringing these things back in, that even the apostles who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who walked with Christ himself, 
were quick in the laying on of hands of Nicholas. He was a recent convert. He was untested. His faith hadn't been proven out. By all appearances, he seemed full of the Spirit, but he had not served anybody under anybody. He had not been brought along or discipled. And so if the apostles could be hasty in their laying on of hands like that, so too can we. And as members here at Mission Bible Church, every November we vote on the new deacons. We vote on any pastors that are coming up. And that's a role that we need to take very, very, very seriously. So far, and I believe still going forward, we've done really well at that. Uh, but it's something that we need to take serious and not just come in here and just randomly, quickly vote anybody in. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. When there's unity in the church, when there's unity in the brothers and sisters of Christ, the great commission flourishes. Hearts are changed and sinners come to Christ. And we recognize his proclamation is always and will ever be fulfilled of I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. There's nothing we can do to thwart Christ's work. There's nothing Satan can do to thwart Christ's work. He will build his church. And even when it seems like we're going through rough times, even when it seems like we're not growing the way that we should, Christ is still building his church and the Holy Spirit is still at work. And it's something that we ought to take hope in, we ought to take encouragement in. Here at NBC, we take, partake in communion once a month. Um, parents, if you show discretion with your children if they're ready or not ready for it. If you're a non-believer, I would suggest that you refrain from it. But the bread that, was bro the bread that we, we break and partake in is representative of Christ's body broken for us. And it's not just broken for us individually that we could be made whole, but it's broken for the entire church body as well, that the entire church body could be made whole, that we could have unity among the believers. His blood, the wine represents his blood that was shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. It's not just the forgiveness of my sins alone, but the forgiveness of each of your sins, that we could be brought into the family and placed into the body of Christ. That we could be believers together with one mission, one purpose, and one goal. And that's the glory of God and the proclamation of his gospel, that sinners would be saved and come to know him. I'd like you to go ahead and exit your rows left. Grab the bread and the cup, return to your seats. Take an internal, internal evaluation and see if there's anything in your heart that's grumbling against another believer, grumbling against the church, grumbling against the leadership, that you can make that right. If there's somebody who's grumbling against you rather than taking a personal attack, that you could set your pride aside for the unity of the church and that you would evaluate yourself in that way.